If you are newer and joining us today, we invite you to download this app. It is called YouVersion. Once you download it, it will just say Bible. And in that, you're going to get the sermon notes that we go through today. You're going to get the announcements that were in the announcement video just a little bit ago. Uh, you won't get the links to those surveys we're talking about because those will come out this week, but you're going to get really everything else we talk about this morning. Uh, if you open it up and you're not from this general area, you're going to need to type in 93455 in the place where it says more and then events, and then we will come up. You click on element and you'll get all of that stuff. My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me if you want to for the reading of God's word or just stay seated because sometimes it's weird even in the living room where you stand. But this is our reading today, Acts 17, verses 22 and 23. So, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Let's pray. Uh, Father, this morning I ask that you would take us and teach us how to understand where we are in our cultures today, that you have placed us exactly where we are, and that we can be a people who speak of your goodness and your grace to those around us as we have begun to understand it, that we would understand that we are to love because you have first loved us. And we would step out into ways that speak the truth of your life-giving strength and salvation to the culture that is around us. Amen. All right, if you are standing, have a seat, although you might still be seated because that's how it typically works right now. We are in Acts chapter 17. Yes, these are the same verses we covered a couple weeks ago. It's kind of funny. My mom said, hey, are you, is this a mistake? Are you doing the same verses again? And I said, yes, because the verses are amazing because they really talk about taking the gospel and placing it in a cultural context in Athens, and it relates directly to our world today. Paul speaks of these words in this framework that speaks where this culture is there and then, but also to where our culture even is today. And when I thought about doing these verses a couple times, I actually came across this thing that was done by Tim Keller, and I was like, oh, that's way better than I could do it. That settles it. We're doing a couple weeks on that. Uh, Tim Keller has this great view when it comes to the culture and the gospel. It's one that never shrinks or diminishes the gospel, but also understands how to translate with words the understanding of the eternal truths of God's rescue of us to people who may not get it otherwise. When he goes through this section, he titles it, To an Unknown God, the Necessity of Belief. And he breaks it out in the standard three-part Tim Keller way, which he calls it the cultural power of the gospel, the intellectual power of the gospel, and the personal power of the gospel. If you ever heard or listened to Keller, it sounds just like him. So really, I'm just going to regurgitate a lot of what he says in this because it really is so good. Now, a lot of people today think it is so much harder in our culture today to relate the gospel where we are because many more people today are skeptical than in Paul's day. Like with the internet, most people think they're an expert on everything because they read Wikipedia, even though Wikipedia is not the most reliable, if you didn't know that. We think that in Paul's day, they must have had it so much easier than we do because people were so much more ready to believe. And that is completely false. 
Paul probably had it just as hard as we do, if not harder than we do. The culture into which Christianity was birthed and born was every bit as skeptical, every bit as hostile to the claims of Christianity. Because back then, everybody believed in some sort of God somewhere, and how is your God better than my God? And what Acts shows us is the case for Christianity. It was made so strongly that skeptical people believed in such numbers that it changed the entire Roman Empire, the entire culture was changed, even though they were every bit as skeptical and resistant and hostile to the claims of Christianity, which means we should be asking questions like, what did Paul say? And what did Paul do and how did Paul relate? And that's what we've been looking at in the book of Acts right now. And everything Paul does is centered on what we call the gospel. The gospel simply means the good news. And it is the best news that we have ever heard. It is God's rescue and redemption that has come to us in the person of Jesus. It is his life death, and resurrection, and everything else that happens is a result of that gospel. So, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17 if you're not there already. The first and foremost, Acts was written to this guy named Theophilus. Theophilus was culturally and intellectually sophisticated. And the book of Acts, we are told, is written to this guy to help him to believe, to help him to be sure, to help him see that it was true. And so really the book of Acts is this version of this case of how the gospel is spoken and spread throughout the Roman Empire. And within the book of Acts, you have different people who speak about it in different ways. You have Paul and Peter. You have like a guy named Stephen in the midst of it. And they're all making the case for Jesus' death and resurrection and what it means to us. And this includes Acts 17, where we are. Paul ends up in this place called the Mars Hill or the Areopagus, and he speaks to the intellectual elite. So I want to look at those three things that Keller talked about and how that really relates. So the first one is the cultural power of the gospel. Acts 17, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, and that is Silas and Timothy, Paul left them behind at Berea and come down to Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now Athens, it is not a military city. It was, it was conquered by Rome, but it really more becomes the cultural center of the Roman Empire. It's where all the intellectual elites made their adopted home. It's like the, the Berkeley or the Harvard or the Yale or whatever. The cultural center of Athens, though, was this place called the Agora. And Agora will simply translate as the marketplace. But when we hear the word marketplace, it doesn't really resonate with what happens here. Because in our idea, marketplace is the mall. Not our mall, but, you know, a a good mall, uh, maybe outdoor shopping area, slow farmer's market, something like that. That's what we think of. But that's not all that the Agora was in this place. Like, if you wanted the news, you didn't have internet, TV, radio. And so the media center for that time would have been the Agora. They would have heralds that came out, and they would propound the news so people could hear what was going on in the Roman Empire. That also sanctioned by Rome, so you might also still get fake news Uh, even back then. It's also the financial center because you didn't have paper money. 
you had coins, but you also had things that you would exchange with one another, and that's where it took place. It's also the stock market, where business owners would meet with investors, and they would shake hands and do these things face-to-face. It's also the art center, where artists would do their work and also perform their work in front of others. It's also the intellectual center. Like, there's no academic journals or editorial pages, so where do new ideas, political, philosophical, or whatever, get debated and worked out? It is in the Agora. So Paul shows up in Athens, and where does he go? Does he go to the local Jewish synagogue? Well, yes, he does do that, but they meet once a week. Where does Paul go the rest of the time? Paul goes into the place where culture is made. He goes into the marketplace. We are told reasoning in the marketplace every day. So every other day, that's where he's at. Now, reasoning is a word that means to dialogue, you engage, you interact. You're not just throwing your ideas out and running away like you like to do on Facebook. It's where you actually enter into conversation with people. And so if we are Christians and we read these verses, we have to ask, well, what does that mean for me? Does that mean that the scriptures are telling us that we're supposed to go and preach on every street corner? And the answer to that is really no. And for two reasons. Number one, you miss the point if you think that's what the text says. Like today, we don't really have this spot that's all these things, you know, financial, cultural, artistic, intellectual, all in the same spot. It's not the slow farmer's market. So don't build yourself across and walk up and down the street and argue with everybody at the farmer's market. The second thing is that Paul was called to be a public communicator. Most Christians are not. And and that's okay. Some are, but most are not. And if it's not your gifting, if it's not your calling, that's okay. As long as it's not a cop-out for never speaking of the gospel where you are. Because if we understand what the gospel really is and what it has done in our lives, and we will live consistently with it. It will start to be living out in our lives so people can see what God has done in us. It doesn't stay in our own private world. Keller writes this. He says, if you understand the gospel and you live in accordance with the gospel, the gospel itself will affect the way you live in every area of your life, including and especially your public life, your life in the public square. Keller likens it to when Jesus shows up to Andrew, James, Peter, John, and they're fishing. And he says, throw your nets out on the other side of the boat. And they're like, okay, we've been fishing all day. We haven't caught anything, but okay, your Jesus will listen to you. And they throw their nets out, and they have such a huge catch of fish, bigger than they've ever had. This is probably for them the most lucrative moment of their careers. And it's into that moment and in that place that Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's in that time. So is the point that every Christian is supposed to leave their secular jobs and become missionaries? No, no, it's not. It's the idea that when you live with and for Jesus, you get a job beyond your job. You get fishing beyond normal fishing. You have a mission that's beyond the place where you work, even though where you work is also part of your mission. It doesn't mean we stop working. We don't, we're not just working for profit or accolades or achievement. Our attitude becomes changed in everything that we do towards money, towards career, towards relationships, whatever it is. None of these things become the main thing to our lives, so none of those things begin to control us anymore. The gospel not, does not just simply give us peace and warmth down in our own private world. It affects how we live in every area of life. 
It's like this. In Africa right now, it has in, in some sections the fastest growing segment of Christianity. Millions upon millions of people are coming to become Christians. There are also lots of social problems in, in Africa, but now, because there's a lot of Christians, they're beginning to deal with those things a little bit differently. They're building orphanages, and they're building hospitals, and they're, and they're taking care of people with AIDS all in the midst of their country. And here's another thing about it. They're also giving voice in their churches to ordinary village women, empowering them in their homes and in their communities. Anna Zeta writes this, In our Mozambican culture, women don't have an active voice in the family, but in Christian life, we discover that not just the husband, but also the wife can have a role. The New York Times wrote this about this. They said, yet while it sounds strange to say so, which is so funny, right? Oh, it sounds so strange. Evangelicals may be Africa's most important feminist influence today. It's like they can't believe what's taking place and what they're seeing. What they're seeing is is that God has called all people to be his children, that there is no male or female, Jew or Greek. We are all one in Christ Jesus. It is equality in the gospel. They're seeing the result and the power of the gospel. And the idea behind the gospel, again, is that everybody in the world is equally lost. No matter where you come from, no matter your, your section of the earth that you were born in, male or female, pedigree, your background, rich or poor, everyone is lost. But through Jesus, we receive life and relationship with God again, and it's not based on our pedigree. It is not based upon our background, our accomplishments, or our achievements. We are loved apart from what we have done and who we really are. Everyone needs grace, and everyone is equally loved and equally lost. And when people get it, that starts to change culture. And that's where Paul starts with these, or as he's talking in the, in the Agora, in the marketplace. But as he's having these discussions, other people hear that. Uh, the second thing becomes then this, intellectual power of the gospel. And I hope I don't lose you in this, not saying you're not intellectual, but... It, we kind of go a couple places in this. So, uh, verse 19, chapter 17. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So Paul goes downtown, he's speaking in the marketplace, these other people hear it, these Epicureans and Stoic philosophers, and they say, oh, well that's different, we want to hear about that. Now Epicureans and Stoics are both philosophical schools who had rejected traditional religion and traditional gods, they didn't believe in any of that. They didn't pray, they didn't worship, they didn't go to temples, they didn't offer sacrifices, and yet they are a little bit intrigued by the things that Paul is saying in the Agora, so they bring him to the Council of Ares, the Areopagus, the most venerable, accomplished, and elite. And they might be wanting to make fun of him, but they ask him, tell us this message. So what does Paul say? How does Paul interact with these people? What are the words that he uses in the midst of this? Well, Paul's going to make two points in his case here. The first one is their big contradiction. He's going to deconstruct what they think they believe. And the second one is going to point directly to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And what Paul does is he starts off agreeing with them. He's not just trying to argue and get in their face. So here's the first part, the big contradiction. Verse 23, he says, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. 
Now, I mentioned this last week. The Epicureans believed that the gods were removed and apart from us and didn't really care about us at all. The Stoics believed in pantheism, that everything is a god. It's like, a, it's like Star Wars theology, you know, the god is in the rock, he's in the trees, and you, that, that thing right there. Uh, but really, in the end, they're more agnostics than atheists. And so what Paul is telling these people here is, you are denying this god with your mouth and your mind, but you are affirming him with your life and how you live. Like you say with your mind and your mouth, he's not there, but you live as if he is there. And that is their big contradiction, and it's our big contradiction in our culture today. The word knowledge to the unknown God, which you worship as unknown, that word knowledge is used in different places throughout these verses. And Paul is pointing out the philosophers say they're secular and they don't believe, but if they're honest and look at the way they lived, they would say, oh, uh, we are actually living as if there is a God over us. And he's not really trying to prove God rationally at this point. What he's trying to do is show them they already believe in God. They won't admit it, though. He says, what therefore you worship is unknown. That can literally be translated as that which you unknowingly reverence. So what does that look like when you unknowingly reverence something and say you don't? It's, it's how a lot of people today live with this fundamental contradiction in their life. In in college, they make almost everybody take this class called Cultural Anthropology. It's a 101 course. Almost everybody has to take it. According to Cultural Anthropology, what makes you you and everything about you is just a result of evolution. The process of random chance, survival of the fittest, God's not involved at all. Today it is taught that the very center of natural selection is survival of the fittest. The strong trample the weak, the strong organisms eat the weak organism. And yet most cultural anthropologists struggle against that, even though they will teach it. They struggle against that in real life every day. Because they also realize that some things are just wrong. Strong humans should not trample weak humans. Strong humans should not eat (laughs) weak humans. But if you take their approach, it is totally natural, even though we'd say it's not right. There are articles written by anthropologists who see something that happened in cultures like places in the Sudan, and they they find things like that repugnant. Because in the Sudan, it is an accepted practice, female circumcision. And it happens because men believe it's going to make the women more willing to obey if they can't experience pleasure. Now, other people have rightly called this mutilation. Women who refuse this are killed. They call it honor killings. It is an accepted practice that if a son or daughter is found guilty of some sexual misconduct in their culture, something the community doesn't like, then it is right and expected for the family to kill that son or daughter to maintain their honor and standing in the community, and it's done all the time. And yet cultural anthropologists and many secular thinkers will write and speak about how this is wrong. And it is wrong. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's wrong. These young girls need to be protected. My cultural anthropology teacher said on numerous occasions that there is no way to judge which culture is right, which one has a more set of values, because everything just evolved, and it's strong eating the weak. But even saying no right culture has a more right set of values is also a value that they find more important than anybody else's values. See, it's crazy how we do this. Most people think mutilating young girls is wrong. Hopefully, we would all agree with that. But where do you get that moral standard? 
Like if it doesn't come out of culture, where does it come from? One secular anthropologist wrote this. Many people still ask me this fundamental question. What authority do we Westerners have to impose our own concept of individual rights on the rest of humanity? This culturally relativistic argument is used by repressive governments to deflect international criticism of their abuse of their citizens. Therefore, she says, it must be rejected. And when someone asks her, well, why are you right? And why are all these other people wrong? Her response essentially just is, I just am. Because there isn't support in their worldview for their own moral commitments. But they know that they have to have them. And so what Paul is saying to these cultural elites is when your premise that there is no supernatural God leads you to a conclusion you know is not true, why not simply change your premise? Why not just change your premise? On the one hand, they affirm deep down what they deny with their hearts and their minds. In other words, what Paul says is true. They unknowingly reverence God to an unknown God. Today we do the same thing. We deny many things with our hearts and our mouths that our lives will affirm something different. This is good and bad. I know a lot of Christians who refuse to forgive those who have hurt them because in their minds the people don't deserve it. But God has forgiven us and we are called to forgive other people. See, sometimes you step into a situation and you cannot not know that there's just something wrong with it. Have you ever felt like that when you stepped into somewhere? A few years ago, uh, when Jay Leno still did The Tonight Show, I know I'm dating myself here because now it's Jimmy Fallon. We all love Jimmy Fallon, but whatever. Uh, Jay Leno used to do it. And Jay Leno was a great interviewer because you almost couldn't, he's unflappable. No matter what you did, he's just straight and sure, just kind of cool. So Howard Stern is on The Tonight Show. And what, uh, uh, what, what people have on TV are these things called standards and practices. And in standards and practices, you have people that watch TV shows and they say, you can't say this, you can't do this, you can't do that. Well, Howard Stern is there and he's running past all these standards and practices, just saying and doing all these things. And Jay Leno, normally unflappable, is, is very flappable at, at this moment. So he tries to stop the conversation with Howard Stern and starts pulling books out of a bag to have Howard Stern comment on them. One of them is Howard Stern's own autobiography. And Howard Stern just starts ripping everybody for all of their self-centeredness and self-righteousness while praising himself that he's not that way, doing the exact same thing that he's saying he's not doing. He had this own moralistic insistence that no one can make moral pronouncements. Stern embodied the contradiction that Paul is talking about, that our culture talks about, how everybody is on Facebook today. We make all these moral judgments, but say nobody can judge us. And the best moment came when Jay Leno's like, we got to go to commercial break. And he reaches in his bag and pulls out one last book, and it's a Bible. And he looks at the camera and he says this, suddenly everything in this book makes perfect sense. The second thing Paul says is other argument goes to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. This is what he says, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So what Paul says is you unknowingly reverence God and that God is Jesus. And how do we know that? Because God has raised him from the dead. And when Jesus is raised from the dead, he declares himself to be the Son of God. And this is the amazing truth about that. If God really did raise Jesus from the dead, which we believe he did, then it's okay sometimes if we don't have the answers to all of our questions. Why is there suffering in the world? All the philosophical questions. Maybe all the questions of the COVID-19 going on in our world right now, or maybe the feelings that you are having. 
If Jesus rose from the grave, it shows that God has been true to his promises from the very beginning, and that in the end should override all of our objections. God has been moving forward throughout history to bring about what he is going to do and his sovereignty. We know this to be true because Jesus came, died for our sins, and rose from the grave. That's where Paul goes with this. Now, I know there's a lot of responses that people have today, like, what if I don't believe in the resurrection? Well, Okay, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you have to historically find a, a plausible alternate alternative for how the Christian church started. In the world where Paul preached in Acts, there are two worldviews. There's the Greek and the Jewish, and both are completely opposed to the very idea of physical resurrection as it happened in Jesus. The Greeks after this will actually mock Paul and stop the whole discourse. Now, on the Jewish side, some Jews, again, believed in a resurrection, but it was of all people at the end of time. But nobody would have believed it would have been possible for one person to be physically resurrected from the dead in the middle of history with all the death and destruction that's still continuing going on. A couple hundred years B.C. to a couple hundred years A.D., there are dozens of would-be messiahs, Christ, that came along. Even in our own century, there was this guy named Schmierson, and a lot of people started following him and calling him that he was the messiah. Schmierson Christ, imagine that. He, he's actually dead now. He's, he's dead. But if you go back to a couple centuries B.C., a couple centuries A.D., all these would-be messiahs, they all died. And most of them were actually killed by the Roman government. And no one anywhere breathed any idea that these people rose from the grave. No one breathed an idea of resurrection. Why? Because it wouldn't have occurred to anybody. Because it's unthinkable. It's completely absurd. And yet, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you have to account for, at that time, in which all worldviews had no room for the resurrection, hundreds of followers of Jesus said they saw him. This starts with a couple women at the tomb to a dozen disciples in an upper room to upwards of hundreds of people. Paul will even say, these people are still alive. Go ask them who saw them if you have any questions about it. All Christians believed it and they spent the rest of their lives proclaiming that and dying for that belief. Is it, it is so unexplainable, this birth of the church and who we are apart from the fact that God rose Jesus from the grave. And if you try to explain it away, you're going to end up like so many atheistic authors today who are jumping through so many hoops. And what they're really doing is struggling against the evidence. They're saying, oh, well, this God was this, and this God said this, and these people believe this, and trying to jumble it all together. And all they're doing is jumping through hoops. Paul makes a case in this world that God rose Jesus from the grave. And that is why certain skeptical people believed. And so he says, you unknowingly reverence this God and that God is Jesus. How do we know? Because he was raised from the dead. And this then will become the third thing, which is the personal power of the gospel. Verse 33 says, So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Keller thinks that only a few people followed and believed what Paul was saying at this point. But he thinks that because Paul got cut off before Paul got to his last point. He says, preachers hate getting cut off. It's a live stream, so I get to talk as long as I want. You you get to sit there and listen to me or shut me off, whatever. He says, if you would have got to Paul's last point, it would have brought this whole thing together. Because this is where Paul always goes when he gets to finish. So Paul starts off, number one, there is a God. He is a creator. That, that is Jesus. Second, he sent Jesus. 
And how do we know that? Because God raised him from the grave. So what would have been Paul's last point? Well, if the God, this God is the great creator, uh, he's the judge of the world, he sent Jesus, so why did he send Jesus? Why did he send this man whom God raised from the dead? Like, did Jesus just come to judge us in the world? Would that have been Paul's point? Number three, it sucks to be you. I'm out. See ya. Paul dropped the mic. No, it goes back to Paul walking through the city and his soul being disturbed by all these idols. Again, Acts 17, verse 16. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. A couple of weeks ago when I talked to you about this, I told you this word kind of means sharpened, you're heightened, you're seeing things. But that word is also a word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in places where God sees his people giving themselves to idolatry, committing spiritual adultery with idols. When modern people think about God, we tend to go one of two ways. We tend to think God is just all love. God's just simply love. He, he burns essential oils and rubs your back and plays whatever music you like and says, Oh, isn't it so wonderful? And then on the other side, the old school religion, that God is simply angry all the time. Follow me or I will smite you. But what the scriptures do is they don't give us simplistic views of who God is. God is not just simple love or or simple anger. God is complex. And that word there where you walk through the city and you're provoked, that's what God is when he sees his people doing these things. It's complex and how he is angered and complex in his love. And I think it's why Luke chooses this word. Because when Luke sees, or when Paul sees a city filled with idols, he's filled with this complex emotion, exactly how God feels about the world. Not simple love, not simple anger. It's complex love that comes when you see people you love destroying themselves. Paul here is really living out the gospel. And so what does that tell us about the good news? It's that God looked at the earth and he sees it filled with idols, that our own hearts are filled with idols, and God has complex emotions. And he says, I love you, and I made you for something more. I made you for myself, and yet you're giving yourself to all these things that are too small for your soul, and so they are enslaving you, and they are destroying you, and yet I love you too much to let you destroy yourself, so I'm going to come and get you. And so the third point is that Jesus comes and sin is judged on the cross. There is judgment there, but Jesus on the cross also bears that judgment for us. On the cross, we have the ultimate example of what this complex love of God looks like. The cross shows us Jesus, who hates sin, knows sin must be punished, that there is judgment that is there, but Jesus dies to pay that penalty because he is so in love with his people that he created that he was glad to die. We are told in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. This is where Paul always goes with his message to this place of what Jesus did to rescue and save us. And that is what is meant to change us. That is what brings about that personal power of the gospel in our lives. Seeing the reality of God's love for us in the person of Jesus. Now many times these things might work in different orders. Some people may be very intellectual, and they may reason out the arguments, like C.S. Lewis, right, for the existence of God and believing in Jesus. That's C.S. Lewis, and then he moves to a place where he starts to understand the personal love of God for us. Some people start in a place where they begin to understand the personal love God has for us, and they believe, then moved into a place of intellectualness, understanding more of it. But then both of those ways and all those things, as they come together, are supposed to change us as we embrace it. What it's going to do is develop this cultural 
supernatural power in our lives, where we step into the places we are to speak of the good news of Jesus. Keller asked this, Is the passionate love of God for you so burning in your heart that it drives you out in service and love into the marketplace like it did Paul? He will actually point out that the early Christians loved the people in their culture so much, even though it was a violent and oppressive and brutal culture. They loved it so much they died for it. They loved it until the brutality died. And people started loving and following Jesus. It swept through so many skeptical people's doubts and converted them. And the reality is, when we understand the gospel and begin to live in it, it's not going to be easy. It's probably going to be hard at times. But we can also love our culture until it changes as well. When we understand the great love with which we have first been loved, we can have these intellectual arguments and understand an intellectual way that God has rescued us. We can have the personal way it changes us, but it's always supposed to go out and interact with culture. We are supposed to be a people who speak of God's love and God's grace and God's kindness because we have first understood it. And this is how Paul speaks in these places to these people. This is what God has done in my life. This is what God has done for all of us. That God has been on a rescue mission. And the good news, the gospel, the greatest news you have ever heard is not the peace that Rome brings, It is the peace that God has brought to us in the person of Jesus because we all know that there is judgment for our sin. And yet Jesus takes that judgment upon himself. And that's the good news of the gospel. Now I'm going to invite the band to come up, socially distanced as they are in this room. (laughs) They're going to come up. And as they do, I'm going to invite you, if you are at home, uh, or I don't know where you'd be if you're not at home, but anyway, if you want to take communion, you can. Uh, You can uh, take some bread and some juice, whatever, Weekly, if you want to get a hold of Element, we'll even give you a little single-use communion cups you can use at your house. But we'd invite you, if you want to, right now to take communion, because it's a reminder of what God has done to rescue and save us. It's a reminder of Jesus' death and resurrection that Paul proclaims to Athens, and that we proclaim in our lives every day by how we live. That God is good, that God is rescuing, that God has rescued us. So we begin to live that out. And I would invite you, if you do take communion, or even in the next few moments while the band plays some songs, that you would maybe humble yourself a little bit more before Jesus this morning and listen to the places where He is sending you in in the midst of our current culture where we are, how He's calling you to speak of Him where we live, work, and play so that he be lifted up in all things. Uh, if you need prayer, we would love to be able to pray with you. There, uh, uh, today, we normally do a Zoom call at 6 p.m. Uh, every night with one of our elders, but today we're going to switch that up a bit. We're going to do it at 12.30, uh, right after uh, third service today, to see if maybe that helps some of you to connect. Maybe at 6, you're doing a lot of stuff with family when you can't do that. So today at 12.30, we're going to try a different time, see how that works for you. You can also, right on the side of the live stream, if you're on YouTube, type in a prayer request. You can send one to connectedourelement.org, and we would love to be able to pray with and for you. So let us know if, if anything like that. Now, if you would like to give, you can give online. You can go to our website. There's a giving tab on top. Uh, like I always say, we are giving to all the people we have before. Actually, probably even giving a little bit more. And giving is simply part of our worship. God has called us to be a generous people. So we want to also live that out in how we worship God and give. And I would encourage you, and the things that we talk about, how we look at Acts, and the, and the practical places of where Paul went and what he said, 
that you would also be someone who begins to live out the great grace that you have first received, that you would understand God's love and goodness that has been given to you. And it'd become a natural part of how we all begin to live. You don't have to have all the intellectual arguments that Paul does. I mean, Paul's are pretty good. But what we want to do is be able just to speak naturally of who God is to the people that are in our lives, in all the places, whether it's work, home, school, wherever it is. We want to be able to speak in real ways of the true God who has come to rescue and save us. Because we get to be a people who, by loving like God loves, will bring transformation, not just in our families, but to our entire culture, when we all begin to live as Jesus lived. So why don't you pray with me? Father, this morning I ask that you would take us and teach us to be a people who love you more than we love anything else. Father, so often we are a people who place our own desires above you and then try and find ways to make you validate our desires. Sometimes we'll even use you to try and get our desires. And what I ask is that you would have the gospel, the understanding of your great rescue of us. So change that mindset in us, that you would change our own private culture of our own private worlds. To be a people who begin to love you as you have first loved us, so we would step out into the world that is around us. And speak of that personal power of the gospel. That it is intellectual. That it is culture changing. But all those things come because you have first rescued and saved us. Have us get our priorities straight. That you made everything to glorify you. And we find our most joy when you are most glorified. So teach us today to be a people, as I said, who understand the gospel enough in our own lives. It would be naturally lived out in all that we say and do. And we ask these things in your son's good name. Amen.